Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to Psalm 19 this morning. We're on our way through the books of poetry in the Old Testament from Job to the Song of Solomon, and we're not necessarily reading every chapter as we go through this section of the Old Testament, but we're going to be keying in on ones that are, I don't want to just say are are significant, but oftentimes ones that have a prophetic element to it or ones that uh, just seem to really resonate. And Psalm 19 is one of those psalms. It's referred to as a wisdom psalm. It speaks about creation and it speaks about God's word. And so if we take heed to especially the the testimony of God's word, then it would be very wise uh, move for us to make and we would definitely benefit from that. So I think you'll be really blessed as we take a look at it. Oftentimes when um, Bible commentators refer to creation as a testimony to the existence of God. They'll refer to that as general revelation, uh, a revealing, generally speaking, of the existence of God because of creation. And oftentimes they'll refer to the word of God as special revelation. Here is something specific that has been delivered down to us so that we can learn more specifically about the Lord and about who he is. Psalm 19, like a number of the Psalms, is a psalm of David, as we see. David wrote a little over half that we know of of the uh, psalms, of the 150 psalms. And this one, like a number of psalms, also starts off saying, to the chief musician. And we talked about this a little bit before where um, maybe most likely the chief musician is the one who is in charge of the Levitical choirs because David is the one who set the order for the priests and so forth to lead in worship. In, um, in the temple that Solomon would ultimately build. Uh, Asaph in 1 Chronicles 16 is referred to as the list is going down of the different Levitical uh, musicians. He's listed as the chief uh, in that particular chapter. I, I found it interesting that his instrument was not the flute or the harp, but his instrument was the cymbals. And he played with resounding cymbals. And that means with loud cymbals. So kudos to the drummers in our midst, uh, as far as Asaph goes. Others believe, and this uh, could very well be, that when it refers to the chief musician, it's referring to the Lord. And so when David's writing this, he's like, Lord, this, is, this one is for you. you know? So I don't wanna say take your pick, but it's kind of um, speculation as to what exactly that's referring to. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 19 in its entirety, and then we'll back up and make some comments. Psalm 19, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord 
is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Mm. You can see why we picked this one, can't you? Psalm 19, again, a wisdom psalm, a beautiful psalm. It starts off speaking of, of God's creation, again, general revelation. Notice um, in verse one, and keep in mind the, uh, the concept, again, of Hebrew poetry. Uh, the idea is not the rhyming of words, but the idea is the rhyming of thoughts. And so oftentimes there'll be parallel thoughts on a, a, like a, a synonymous statement being made, or it might be what they call uh, antithetical, a contrasting statement that might be made. And another form of parallelism is synthetic. And the idea with that is it's simply building upon what was stated previously. But here we see uh, synonymous a lot here in Psalm 19, where it says the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So the parallel that we see here are the words heavens and firmament. We'll talk about that word in just a second. And also the words declare and shows, and then the words, the glory of God and his handiwork. Does that make sense then? So you've got the heavens and the firmament declaring and showing the glory of God, his handiwork. And so this is helpful as we go through and we're, we're seeking to interpret uh, the scriptures to go, well, what is that saying? And then when we th keep in mind the idea of Hebrew poetry, well, well, maybe it's saying the same thing or maybe it's saying a contrasting thing. And so that's where that can be very helpful. So as we take a look at this, and we'll talk about the, the declaration of God's glory in just a moment, but the word firmament, um, in this passage, it's synonymous for heavens. So as we speak of the heavens, it's, we're also speak of the firmament, we're speaking of the heavens. The word firmament, and when I say this, I'm referring to the word in the Hebrew in which this was written in. So you, in your translation, you might go back and go, well, it doesn't say firmament there, it says expanse. It, it's the Hebrew word is the same in Genesis chapter one, where it's referred to repeatedly, maybe a half a dozen times or so. And it's referring to, for sure, the celestial heavens where the sun, moon, and stars would be, and, and also quite possibly, I think, the terrestrial heavens where the birds would be flying. And so uh, what is it saying as we're looking at this? It's, it's speaking about uh, God's creation being a testimony to his very existence. So the heavens, when we look up into, let's say, a starry night and look at that, uh, what do we see? What, what is so magnificent about what we see up there as we're looking? I, I, I think about the 
the size of the heavens. And you know, when you do the, the little comparison of, of earth is so small compared to the sun, and right, the sun is so small compared to Betelgeuse, and Betelgeuse is so small compared to the largest star that we see out there that, you know, the, the word astronomic comes to mind. And we, we think about how great and big it is. And, and we also think about the beauty of the heavens, is, especially when we look at some of the Hubble telescope pictures, the, the, uh, the color that's in all of that and so forth. We think about the complexity and the order of the heavens that we see out there. And in this way, it's a declaration to, to how glorious God is. The, these are the works of his hands. This is what, what he has done. And I wanted to point out too, that our verbs in verse one, declare and shows, they're in the type of form that speaks of the continual action. So as it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, it's that they, they keep on declaring the glory of God. And the firmament keeps on showing, and that word also can be translated proclaiming or announcing the works of his hands. And so again, verse one, that the bottom line is the heavens, the creation, it declares the very existence of God. But that all depends on which bias you're looking at it from. In other words, which lens are we looking at the universe from? Do we look at that and do we see a divine designer, a divine creator? Or do we look at that and we go, wow, to think that all of that came about just by mere chance, by a big explosion. And this is a very popular theory in the non-believing world, is that this all happened by random chance. And the, the reality is, is we don't see that happening normally. When we have some kind of explosion take place, like let's say in our kid's bedroom or something, you know, what does it lead to? It leads to disorder, right? It doesn't lead to order. A bomb went off and all of my clothes are put inside the dresser. It, it commonly leads to disorder. So that's what we would think of when everything exploded. It would be chaos, not an ordered system that we see today. And of course that comes down to also the earth and our bodies and the complexity that we see within our bodies. It's just amazing. You know, you go beyond Darwin and the technology of his day and you start looking into the human cell and you're like, wow, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so, but that all depends on the bias that you come from. I'm coming from the bias that I believe this to be God's word and that God created all of this. But if you're not coming from that bias, then you're going to be looking at it in a different way. We're all looking at the same evidence, aren't we? Okay, it's all the same evidence. It's just how we're interpreting that. And Paul makes mention of that in Romans chapter one, where he says this. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We see what is true, but here it's being pushed down. We're suppressing that truth. Because notice what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, so that man is without excuse in suppressing and holding back the truth that is evident to all. Why? Because the very existence of God, the invisible God, is seen by the visible things that he made. One other thing I wanted to point out in this verse, it's very similar to verse one of Psalm 19 in again the tenses, 
where it speaks about his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's in the present tense, which, think, which speaks of the continuous action. They're continually being clearly seen and continually being understood by the things that he in fact has made. And so it does come down to, again, a bias in how we look at it or the, the type of lens that we're looking at the same evidence through. I remember when we were raising our kids and we wanted to raise them obviously uh, on the word of God and knowing who God is, but we also wanted them to know the, the, the other beliefs that are in the world. And so as we would share with them about evolution, you know, elementary age kids, and they look at us kind of like, really? You know, it's like, who would believe that? You know, so when you look at it through the eyes, they're kind of like the litmus test in a sense. You know, you look at it the eyes of a, of a child and, and again, it just, to get order from chaos, to get order from uh, destruction, it just, it doesn't add up with common sense. Let me read to you a quote. This is out of David Guzik's commentary, but this is a quote from astronomer and physicist Robert Jastrow, which says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason. So this is the idea of not his faith in God, but the scientist who lives by his faith in the power of reason. The story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And the idea of that, if you don't get it, it's like, Apart from God, we're searching, we're searching for the truth, we're, we're suppressing the truth though in unrighteousness and we're looking and we finally get to the place where we're going to find out and we find that the Bible scholars have known it all along. Because why? Because they're looking through the lens of this word. They're recognizing that there is a divine creator. You know, in the little time that I had to look into Robert Jastrow, he was not a believer. He was an, a, a self-proclaimed agnostic. And yet repeatedly he's testifying to there must be a creation. You know, isn't that something? So an agnostic is, is somebody who doesn't know. An atheist is one who's saying there is no God. Atheist, theo is the word God in Greek. A means there's no God. Uh, agnostic, gnosis is knowledge. A means there's no knowledge. It just means I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if there's a God or not. And that's what he seemed to be self-proclaimed. And so it's cool though that he as an astronomer and a physicist is looking at the same information we're looking at and he's going, hmm, I don't know if there's a God or not, but this argues more for creation than it does for just a random chance that this came about. So again, the heavens are continually declaring the glory of God and the firmament, the expanse, the skies, maybe even again speaking of the celestial heavens showing his handiwork. Notice uh, the next three verses. Day into day, it's like the heavens are continuing to speak. Day into day, utter speech. And night into night reveals knowledge. Again, do you see the parallels that are taking place there? You've got day and night that uh, either contrasting or paralleling, both of them speaking, uh, but notice speaking uh, and also revealing knowledge. And then there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard their line, the idea is a measuring line. Some translations have voice has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so as you look at this, everyone everywhere has the knowledge basically of creation. And so anywhere on the planet, you can look out and go, wow, 
Look at the astronomical universe. Look at the order and the design and so forth. So the testimony going throughout all the earth. And our passage here is that this is the general revelation that creation itself is testifying to the existence of a divine creator, a divine designer. Here's another quote uh, out of David Guzik's commentary. This is a, a preacher, a theologian from the 1800s named Tholuck, and he said this, though all preachers on earth should grow silent and every human mouth cease from publishing the glory of God, the heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim his majesty and glory. Really cool. Huh? So we all could be quiet, but the heavens themselves are just gonna continue to declare the very existence of God, testifying of him. And so that's the idea as we get started here, the heavens declaring the speech going throughout the earth and then focusing in on one particular heavenly body as we see at the end of verse four, in them that is in the heavens, he has set a tabernacle for the sun and then speaks of the sun. You know, it's interesting to think of the sun because throughout uh, the, the history of mankind, oftentimes the sun has been worshiped as a God. You know, and, and why would that be? Again, you're looking up into the heavens. That's the biggest body that is seen out there. And what does the sun do? You know, for ancient civilizations, what does the sun do? Well, you're freezing at night and, oh, here comes the sun and the sun is warming me up. And the sun is what, it's giving light. So I can see it's, it's before we have street lights and everything, but now I've got light and I can see because light is dispelling the darkness. And, and the sun, as we know, causes things to be able to grow and so forth. And so you, you can have life because of the sun. And so throughout man's existence, the sun has been worshiped by many. And I wanted to make one note uh, as we look at the end of verse six, where it says there is nothing hidden from its heat. The warmth that we get from the sun. I, I, it, I saw just how much that was when we were during the pandemic, we were meeting outside and God has blessed us so much with a, a facility here and a, a community to uh, the weather that we have in this community. We were able to, it was no problem for us. I think about the churches that were up in the northern part of the country and trying to deal with, with the elements and so forth. We were so blessed out here. And we met um, throughout the summer, even on the grass, um, a natural elevation for a stage out here. It was really quite nice. I can, in all honesty, I only remember two Sundays that we were out there, I was like, ooh, it's kind of, it's sticky, it's hot today. We would back our service up to 7 a.m. in the morning and have it out there. And it was, it was, it was a kind of a neat time, wasn't it? Well, at the same time, we're still meeting for our men's group as well. And we meet at seven in the morning every Saturday. So we're meeting out on the south side because on the south side, we don't wanna be under the shade tarps, you know, at seven in the morning. We, we wanna be over there. And I'm talking about the winter now when we're out there because it gets cold here for us anyway, in the winter. And I remember being out there and we've got our propane lamps that are out there between the tables and you're trying to get one of the seats that's close to the propane lamps, but the propane lamps, they're only going about the surface, you know, just warming up a little bit. And this is what's interesting. As soon as the sun would break the horizon, you could feel it. It's like it would go through to your bones. And, it would, and that's when I realized the warmth that we get. It was still in the 40s at that time, but you could feel the warmth because the sun had come up 
and the, and the power of the sun was coming through. And so here David uses the sun here as one of these heavenly bodies that uh, again are proclaiming the very power and existence of God. And he refers to the sun here as as um, coming out like a, a bridegroom coming out of the chamber and uh, like a, a strong man ready to run the race. And in verse six, he says, it's rising is from one end of heaven and it's circuit to the other end. And so you get the picture of the sun rising and then it's like the bridegroom coming out of its chamber and a runner racing across the sky until it goes down again. And you know that terminology, the sun rising, it's from Earth's perspective. And when we look, it looks like the sun is rising, but we know that the Earth is, is actually rotating. And so it just appears like that. But we still use that terminology today, don't we? Sunrise and sunset, just to be able to tell when we're going to see the sun and when it's going to go away. When you see the word bridegroom, who do you think of? Jesus. Me too, because in the Bible, you know, we use the terms bride and groom, but in the Bible, it refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. And as I, I looked at this and, and was thinking about it, you think about Jesus, here's the sun, what does it do? It dispels the darkness. Who is Jesus? He's the light of the world. And when I think about the sun and the life that it brings and how it dispels the darkness, it's the beginning of a brand new day. And I think of Jesus as he's referred to as the morning star. And he is the one who's gonna come, the one really who has come, but who's gonna come again and usher in a brand new era. You know, when the Bible speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom, who is it referring to when it speaks of the bride? The church, right. And it speaks of the love that Jesus has for his people and the love his people have for, for him as well. And so it's kind of a neat thing to think about as we're, as we're looking at this. But again, the, this section right here, just speaking of the general revelation of God to mankind. And just as the sun brings light to all, now we segue to this section where we see God's word, his special revelation, bringing enlightenment. So through his word, we can see who he is and, and what he likes and what he does not like. And so notice as we go to verses seven through nine specifically, it, it uses the, the, the term, the law of the Lord, the testimony, verse eight, the statutes, the commandments, do you see that? It, it's all referring to God's word here. It may be different nuances of that, but it's, it's all synonymous, if you will, in referring to the word of God as it's explaining to us um, what it is and what it does. I also want you to notice, beginning from verse seven, it says the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord. Notice again that Lord is in all capital letters. This is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. Um, backing up in the first six verses, the only reference we find is in verse one, as it says, the glory of God, El, in Hebrew, short for Elohim. Okay, that again is general revelation using the term God. We get to special revelation. It's his personal name. That's kind of neat, isn't it? So the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, and then we see what it is. So it kind of starts off with the noun and then goes to the descriptive word. It's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure. I'm just doing a few of these right now. And then of course, the effect that it has. What does it do? It converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. And so I just put a list up here to, to put them in columns so that you can see. And again, 
It's a reference to God's word. So uh, there's subtleties that, that we see in the different words, law, testimony, statutes, and so forth. But then also what it is, the descriptive word in the center, and then, if you will, what it does in the right-hand column there. So all of this section right here is, is focusing in on God's word, the special revelation that God has given to us so that we can know about him and know who he is. That's what we have sitting before us. That's why we spend so much time in the word of God is because this is what he has left with us to tell us about himself. How can I trust this to be God's word? That's another, that's another study, isn't it? The study of apologetics. There's so much fact that our faith in this as God's word can rest upon. And so if you have a doubt, well, how can I be sure if this is really God's word? See me afterwards because we've got some great resources in the library, simple resources to help build that faith that we all need to have in this book right here. Because really, when you think about it, Christianity, everything we believe is based on this right here, okay? And I don't wanna get off on a major tangent right here, but there is a right way and a wrong way to interpret this book, okay? Because we can look at maybe different religions and we can see the denominator as to, or the, the reason that they believe something and, and Christians would believe something else is well, their foundation is different. They have a different a sacred text that they're using. We're using God's word, the Bible. But when you look at, at Christians, you know, why do some interpret one way and some interpret another? There is a right way to approach the Bible, and basically it's how you would approach anything that you would read. It's in a literal way. It's called the historical, grammatical, contextual. That sounds very, uh, very cool, doesn't it? But the whole idea is this is something that happened in history. Real people at real places, historical. It's something that happened in a certain context, a certain culture. And it's something that was described to us using grammar, using literal words. So how should we take it? We should take it literally unless there's key indicators as to why we should not take it literally. When it talks in verse 5, as it's speaking about the sun, notice it says, which is like a bridegroom. It doesn't say the son is a bridegroom. It say it's like a bridegroom. So that's, a, that's an indicator for us. Okay, this is being used as a metaphor right here because it's using the word like. And so we take it literally unless it's clearly showing us that we should take it figuratively or unless our literal interpretation is going against the clear teachings that we find in the rest of the word of God. So a historical, a contextual and also a grammatical approach to it. Why should we take it literally and not spiritualize it? Think about when we look at prophecy and we're looking at end times and so forth. Should we look at the passages and kind of spiritualize them or should we take them literally? And that the reason we can take them literally is because we've already seen prophecy fulfilled literally. The first coming of Jesus, when he came to the earth, he fulfilled, uh, they say over 300 prophecies and he fulfilled them literally, not figuratively. It was predicted he would be born in Bethlehem. That's where he was born. It was predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That's exactly what took place at the crucifixion. So we've got this precedent. We, we've got a, this right pathway on how we can approach this book. And, and that goes on top of why should we should believe this book. Okay, so a little bit of a tangent, but it's important for us to know why we believe what we believe, especially in the days that we're living in, because we need to be grounded so that we can ourselves walk through victorious, but help others 
that might be shaken in the days that lie ahead for all of us. So as we take a look at this, let's break it down just a little bit as it speaks about the law, the testimony, and the statutes. The word law in verse 7 is the Hebrew word Torah, and that's referring to the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But that word Torah is used not just for the Ten Commandments and not just for the other laws that we see in the books of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and so forth, but it's often used as all five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so uh, speaking here of, of God's word, what is it? It's perfect. So the word perfect, and I'm giving you some definitions that are out of some of the, um, the Hebrew helps. The word perfect, it means complete. It means without fault. It means perfect. <laughs> so God's word is perfect. What does it do? It converts the soul. The word converting means to turn back or to return. God's word has a way of penetrating our beings right down to the depth of our soul. I remember uh, a number of years ago, we were out sharing the four spiritual laws. You guys remember those little tracks where you're basically taking them through the Romans road. We've all sinned. There's a penalty for sin. We need Jesus. That's, that's basically the truth of it. And I remember going out and it was like the, the just, you know, cold turkey, I don't know how else to say it, street witnessing. And um, the partner that I was with, we started off with this group of girls, adult girls, adult ladies, and we started off trying to just build a, a conversation and we're Christians and they're you know, kind of attacking. Well, Christianity is cool. We're getting beat up. Can we share this little booklet with you? Sure, go ahead. As soon as we got to the scripture passages and we're reading, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible right here says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son it was like they were frozen in time. It's like the word of God by the spirit of God just arrested them and it was just kind of blank stares looking forward. And it was that experience for me that showed me how powerful God's word is. It's not my words. It's not us talking about Christianity is cool. It's God's word. And I believe it's because his Holy Spirit is in the world convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when we come to God's word, it is perfect. And what can it do? It can turn back people. It can bring them back to the Lord, converting the soul. It goes on to say the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony speaks of a witness or testifying of God's ways. The word sure means it's reliable, it's faithful, it's, it's permanent. And what does it do? It, it brings wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom, when you think about it, it's, well, it's the correct application of knowledge. I, I, I don't know what to do. I have this accumulation of facts. I don't know what to do with it. And so wisdom would be the correct application of the knowledge I have. Uh, and many of us, you know, we, we often are, are crying out for wisdom, aren't we? Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. In uh, my life, and I've shared this with my family as well, uh, for me, there were three huge things in a person's life. And this is aside really from trusting Christ as your savior, but three huge things in a person's life, as I saw it, it would be buying a house, getting married and having children. And I think the reason why is because they all speak of commitment. You know, if I'm just renting, I put in my 30-day notice, I'm out of here. If I bought a house, not so easy. <laughs> if I'm just dating, then sorry, honey, it's not working out. You know, heartbreaking, but 
it's a lot easier than if you're already married and you're divorcing. And having children, that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have kids, you don't have them until they're 18, right? I mean, they're your kids for life. And that's a blessing, amen? amen? It is a blessing. And so, Lord, what do I do in this situation? And I remember when I was renting this house years ago, and the landlord came to me and he, he said, Steve, I'm putting the house on the market. And I'm like, oh, great, what am I gonna do? I gotta move. And, and he goes, but I'm gonna give you the first crack at buying it. And then I was like, oh, great, what am I gonna do? You know, this is one of the big three that I have on my list here. And so what I did, I was a believer. I, I, I was like, Lord, what should I do? But immediately, immediately, I felt like I'm not gonna know if I'm hearing from God or not. You know why? I wasn't in the habit of asking God. I wasn't in the habit of, what is it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. I wasn't in the habit of doing that. And so I thought, I really honestly, and rightly I'm sure thought, I'm not gonna know if I'm really hearing from him for not. And if you're wondering how the house turned out, I just blew the whole thing. And <laughs> I started knocking the construction of it and he's the guy who built it, you know? And he's like, forget it, I'm not gonna sell it to you, you know, so. Anyway, so what does the word tell us? If any of you lacks wisdom, James 1.5, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The, the qualifier though is you, has to, you have to ask in faith. You, you can't ask doubting because you don't expect to receive anything if you're doubting. But again, if you need wisdom, ask God. Colossians 2.3, and speaking of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so God's word, a testimony of that which is sure. And what does it do? It brings, it brings wisdom to the simple, to the naive. Verse eight, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word statutes carries with it the idea of instructions, procedures. It's translated as precepts 21 times in Psalm 119 alone. The statutes of the Lord are right. They're upright or they're straight. There is right and there's wrong. It's not relative. It's not what might be right for you isn't necessarily right for me. The Bible tells us what is right, what is wrong, what is white, what is black. And so the statutes, they're right. And what do they do? They rejoice the heart. They bring joy. You know, I remember <clears throat> I became a Christian in my early 20s. I remember my late teen and early 20s when I first found out about Christianity, I thought that was the end of all joy. If you become a Christian, right? All of a sudden you just have to keep a bunch of rules. And I thought that's the last thing I wanna do. I wanna have fun. How many of you know the devil is a deceiver and he's really good at, at deception? And that's exactly where I found myself thinking that I would no longer have any fun. But, but why do God's statutes, his instructions rejoice our heart? It's because he has our best interests at heart. He knows the way to go. And when we go his way, that's when it turns out the best. <clears throat> the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. When I think of commandments, I think of orders that are being given, okay? But the commandments here, they're pure. The NIV translates that radiant. The New Living Translation translates it clear. And what does it do? It's enlightening to the eyes. It illuminates us. And, and my point isn't to fill you with stories this morning, but, but these are really to kind of, explain the point here, enlightening the eyes, having an understanding. When I first did become a Christian, and I was 23 years old when I became a Christian, it was as if, not as if the blinders were taken off, 
but it was if the, the peripheral blinders were removed. It's like I was going through life like this, looking at life. And then when I became a Christian, it was like, I, I can, I'm still looking this way, but I can see these things that are out here. And, it, and what that translates to is all of a sudden, it made sense to me why there was evil in the world. Because there was this enlightenment as to why there is evil within the world. It made sense to me why I existed. What is the purpose of man? When you come to the Lord and God's word, it's like the answers are there. And so you can have meaning, you can have purpose in your life. And it's like, don't you feel that way too? You've got a, 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 a grand understanding on, on who you are, why God created you, why there's evil. That's a big question right now. Why is there evil in the world? If God is all powerful, why doesn't he do something about this? He, he has done something about this. He brought his son into this world to, to fix our mess. And there's coming a day where this will be wrapped up. It's his way in his timing right now. Those are good questions to have answered when we live in the days where we don't understand why things are going on to come back to what we do understand. Okay. All right. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the word fear is being used as a synonym, isn't it, for God's word, right? Just like the word law, testimony, statutes, commandment. Now the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word fear, it means what? To respect. It means to reverence. When we talk about God, we, we, we speak to him, we speak of him with reverence and respect. I do find this interesting, though, that when the word fear is used as the fear of the Lord, 41 of the 45 times, it's translated as fear. Okay, and that's not just the New King James Version, that's the English Standard Version. Why did the translator choose to use the word fear and not put the reverence of the Lord or the respect of the Lord? Why did he put the fear? That's what, that's what it means. It means fear. And it's used, like, like is mentioned right there in Proverbs repeatedly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the prerequisite of being wise is to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord prolongs days. There's strong confidence in the fear of the Lord and the fountain of life, and it leads to life. Those are all from Proverbs. I was gonna put it on a slide, but quite frankly, I ran out of time and I just couldn't do it. So those are all in uh, the book of Proverbs. When God was giving his law to the children of Israel, as it was remembered in Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, as the Lord is speaking, uh, or as Moses is saying, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. There is a knowledge of, of the greatness of God. You know, the, the, he, he is so far beyond us and that, that helps us to know that. And, and God help us not to treat him in a flippant way. Uh, it'd be, I, just, I just admonish us and exhort us to be really careful about how we refer to God uh, and, and how we refer to his word and, and even how we refer to sin. You know, this is serious stuff. How bad? Oh, this is so good. It's sinful. 
ah, you know, sin is the reason Jesus had to die. And so the, the idea of, of respecting, reverencing, hallowed be your name, the fear of the Lord. Lord, show us what that means. It's clean. The, the idea, the way the word is used is in a ceremonial sense and also in an ethical sense, and it endures forever. And then finally, the judgments of the Lord. They are true and they are righteous altogether. Now let's see what David says, his assessment of God's word. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Gold would be the, the most expensive thing they could have in that day. Honey, the sweetest thing. God's word is the most valuable and the most pleasant to experience. And he goes on to say, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Great reward to those who desire the sweetness of his word and heed its warnings. And I wanna point out how David, he didn't see God's law as a burden, did he? He found his word as desirable and enjoyable. And it goes back to what I was referring to, my assessment before I became a Christian was just that, oh, that's a bunch of rules. It's not the reality. And David shows us that it's valued and it's sweet. And then he cries out here, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Those things, you know, the, the, the law al allowed a sacrifice for those things that were done in ignorance, those sins that were committed in ignorance. So cleanse me from secret, secret faults. But then he says in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Those are sins that are done knowingly. There was not a sacrifice allowed for that. You're gonna, you're gonna go in the face of the Lord and go, I'm gonna do this anyway. They were to be cut off from Israel. Yeah, there was no sacrifice for that. So keep back, guard your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. As he starts that section, really in crying out, God, I wanna follow after your word. He says, who can understand his errors in verse 12? And it reminds me of what David had to say in Psalm 139, when he said this in Psalm 139, 23 to 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, the way that reads to me is David is going, God, I don't even know my own heart. You know, see, see if there's anything inside of here that is not pleasing to you and, and help me see it so I can repent of it so that I can follow you in the everlasting, lay, everlasting way. Know my heart. It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I the Lord test the heart. He knows our heart. And I think that's, that's what I see with David. Lord, I don't know my own heart. Search me, O God, and see if there's anything in there that I need to repent of. And then the way he ends it is just so precious. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You see David's desire to be pleasing to the Lord, not just the words that are spoken, but also what he's meditating upon on the inside. Not just what is coming out of the mouth, but what's inside of the heart. You know, he closes this with speech. First of all, the heavens are declaring their speaking, and then the word of God is sounding forth, it's speaking. And now he's saying, let, let my speech be that. 
which would be pleasing to you, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. What did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So not just what I don't let slip out, because you think about it, I don't say that, but inside I'm like, and I'm filled with, filled with all bitterness, right? And so forth, but, but let my heart, let it be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength, literally my rock, you're the one that I am founded upon. And finally, my redeemer, my Goel, translated as the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. The one who could come and be able to help a person who had sold themselves, their, their possessions, and could help them buy them back. Also, the person that had sold themselves into slavery. The Goel, the next of kin, could come and, and pay that money to bring them back. He was also the avenger of blood, the one who would go and defend. And this is our Lord. Jesus came to redeem us. He came and became our next of kin. He became a human being so that he could bear the judgment that we deserve, so that he could redeem us and bring us safely into heaven. That's really the, the, the meat of why we're here, isn't it? It comes back to the simplicity of the gospel that God loved us, and that's the motivating factor, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He's offered us eternal life, forgiveness, because we're all guilty, and our part is believing in him, putting our trust in him. Have you done that? More than just saying, I believe that God is real, or I believe Jesus exists. Have you given your life to him and saying, I want you to be the Lord of my life and I wanna follow you from this day forward. If you haven't done that, now's the time to do it. Now's the time in the privacy of your own heart to say, God, I recognize I'm a sinner and I want your forgiveness. Take my life and make me the person you've always wanted me to be, okay? the most important decision any one of us can make. And if you'd like us to pray with you, we'll be here at the close of the service. Let's go ahead and stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. So much to be meditated upon in this Psalm, Father. We thank you for the existence that we can see, uh, uh, your existence that we see in the world, but we thank you especially for your word that we have that shows us who you are and what you're like and how you think of us. And I thank you, Lord, that we are precious to you, valuable to you. And Lord, we just want to offer ourselves afresh. We pray, oh God, that you would give us that which we need to be a bright shining light in the world we live in. Help each one, I pray, Lord. I know we're all in different places right now. Please, Give, give each of us ears to hear the way you would guide us. Help us to be still and quiet before you that we might hear your voice. And Father, we do pray for those that are in need. We pray, oh Lord, oh God, that, that they would sense your peace. And we pray especially for those who have not yet come to you, Lord, that they would just cry out, that they would surrender their lives, that they would humble themselves and come to you. Lord, you are good and we thank you so much. May you be honored in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.